You don't care about the Prince Henry Meghan Markle interview with Oprah Winfrey. Neither do I. Neither does Jimmy Gagliano or Iman Caffell or Charlie Fink. But where others see the royal soap opera through the lens of celebrity culture, we see in Harry a military vet without a mission. In true Havoc Journal fashion, we use the interview as a jumping off point to talk about toxic masculinity, the loss of purpose, and calls to defund the police. We talk about Project Sapient, Second Mission Foundation, and whether or not Sammy the Bull Gravano's sideburns are, in fact, equal. We take passive-aggressive shots at Jimmy's blue checkmark status on Twitter, as well as his burgeoning political career, while Jimmy goes out of his way to remind us that he really should be booked through his agent. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is The Weekly Havoc. Welcome to the second episode of The Weekly Havoc. It's a roundtable discussion of the week's events from the staff and writers at Havoc Journal. Iman Kafel is an eight-year Army vet. He's a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom. He was a police officer. He had time in patrol, plainclothes, Metro SWAT. He was a detective in major crimes. And currently, he is a detective in a narcotics task force with the DEA, as well as serving on the DEA special response team. Now, he has a training company and podcast, Project Sapient, which we'll get to later, which tries to fill the gap, as I understand it, tries to fill the gap between the current training and equipment being provided to law enforcement and what should be provided. Did I kind of get that right, Simon? Yeah, that's right. Yep, that's right. Cool. And that obviously leads to a lot of discussion points and a lot of really interesting avenues that we're going to go down, especially when we talk about your article a little bit later in the show. Anyway, welcome, yep. Iman. Glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Absolutely. Um, James A. Gagliano is a law enforcement analyst and policing methodology expert for CNN. He is on the board of directors for the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund. He is a 1987 graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point and a former Army infantry officer. He has 25 years with the FBI, where he was appointed to a variety of investigative tactical resolution crisis management, undercover, mid-level, and senior management positions, including assignment to the FBI's elite counter-terror unit, the Hostage Rescue Team. He has been awarded the FBI's second highest award for valor, Medal of Bravery. He deployed three times to Afghanistan in support of Operation Enduring Freedom, and he served as the acting legal attache at the U.S. Embassy in Mexico City. Currently, he is running for mayor in Cornwall on the Hudson, New York. And he is, on top of it, a last-minute booking. So he's a champ for even doing this right now because, as we understand it, up until 15 minutes ago, he was out shaking hands and kissing babies in the street and has stopped all that just to come in and talk with us for a bit. So, Jimmy, much appreciated. Thank you for being here, brother. My friend, I, I, I could never – I can never turn down Charlie. When Charlie calls – 
Look, there's my wife. That's the, that's top tier. Charlie's not top tier when it comes to getting me to do things, but he is second tier. And when I say second tier, it's not that far down there. So when he calls, um, I, I got to say, you know, five years ago when I was, uh, you know, just left the FBI and I thought I knew everything and I was, you know, 10 feet tall and bulletproof and I wanted to get into media, um, having journal and, 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 and Charlie, were the were the first person and and venue to give me an opportunity and really I owe a lot to it. So the fact that you guys are all associated with it, I feel like we have a kinship and a brotherhood. And uh, like I said, when Charlie calls, it's it's like the mob. When the boss calls, you better come in. <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad I could ride Charlie's coattails enough to get you to come on the podcast, and I will take it. It means a lot. Um, so again, Charlie, the Charlie being referred to is Charlie Faint, of course. He is riding shotgun with me again this week. Charlie is an active duty Army intelligence officer. He's the deputy director of the Modern War Institute at West Point. He has previous assignments throughout special operations, including JSOC, as well as seven deployments, in addition to operational tours in Egypt, the Philippines, and Korea. Three master's degrees, currently a PhD candidate, executive director of the Second Mission Foundation. And most relevantly, he is the owner of the Havoc Journal. Hi, Charlie. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me on the show again. And, and Iman and Jimmy, so excited to have you guys on. And I'm looking forward to a great show today. Yeah, absolutely. And Charlie, uh, I mean, obviously, you're Booker in Chief. And, uh, you know, I don't have the WASA to get Jimmy on here, but you do. And I'm deeply appreciative you're able to get him on, uh, especially on a day like today when he's out doing important things and coming in here to BS with us. It's much appreciated. Yeah, glad to do it. And I, I think this is going to be a really special show because between Iman and Jimmy, you're going to get such a, a wide perspective on law enforcement. And as you know, that's one of the things that we're trying to stress through Havoc Journal is yeah. reaching out to those guys and, and with Jimmy and Iman both having a, a foot firmly in the military and first responder side. I think this is going to be a real special show today, Chris. Well, uh, no, I totally agree. And it's important to say that with them each having a foot in both the military and the law enforcement worlds, that kind of subject matter expertise is why it was so relevant that we sit down and talk about the Prince Harry and Meghan Markle interview with Oprah. Obviously, that's just, you know, a perfect symbiotic match. Okay. Let's <laughs> talk about why I'm even, I even made this our, our top news story for the show to this week, because it requires explanation. First, let me just stipulate this topic, the Prince Harry, Meghan Markle interview with Oprah is going to be beneath all of us. Okay. It is trivial. We've got infinitely more important things to talk about. We've got COVID, Myanmar, rising China. We had Tucker Carlson say something about the military this week. There's a million things we could have, could have gone with, but we didn't. And that's completely my fault. Um, and here's why I'm taking ownership for it. First off, it's a story that people care about. And obviously, part of the reason, the reasoning behind this show is to kind of bridge that civil military divide. So to your average passerby, your average civilian, probably the Prince Harry, Meghan Markle thing is going to stand out and uh, move the needle a little bit more on their radar. So that's kind of the clickbaity reason why this might be interesting to talk about. But I think there's also a much deeper aspect to it. The three issues that it seems like people, and by people, I really am talking about like your blue checkmark Twitter types, the three issues that people seem to be focused on when it comes to this interview is 
Meghan Markle's charges of racism against the royal family that they, uh, you know, were curious about exactly how much darker the child's Archie's, I guess the baby's name is Archie, his skin color was going to be. Um, and that he, that his skin color may have led to him being denied princehood. And then people also seem to be very concerned, either pro or con, that Harry was cut off from the royal family. And then there's the third group, which says, didn't we fight a revolution so we don't have to worry about stuff like this and even discuss it? And that seems to be kind of the three even divides of people. And I'm basing this again on Twitter, but what they seem to be talking about. I, however, think there's actually a very different aspect that we can talk about, especially with the expertise that we have on right now. So let me set the table. I was listening to the Jocko podcast, Jocko Willings podcast, uh, about a week or two ago, and he had on a guy, a former SBS guy named Dean Stott. And it was Dean Stott was pushing his book, and it was an interesting book, but one of the key parts of it is that he actually ended up training with Harry, with Prince Harry, when they were going through what our, our their equivalent of what we would call our JTAC school or our joint uh, joint tactical air controller. So learning to call in airstrikes and do close air support. And so Dean met Harry there. They became partners during that course. And uh, they ended up being fast friends ever since. And what Dean Stott talked about is how comfortable Harry was in the military. That was the one place that he didn't have to be a royal, that he it was mandated that he get treated like everyone else that he fit into that. He appreciated that. He loved that the media wasn't there. He wasn't in the glare of the spotlight. Um, and he could just be a Joe. And obviously he was an officer and all that. So he wasn't, you know, a junior enlisted guy, but, but he was one of the guys. And Dean Stott talked about what had made their friendship last is the fact the very first time they met, Dean Stott kind of made jokes about him and everyone in the room kind of froze. They weren't sure how Harry was going to take it. And Harry laughed. And so the room laughed. And that's how they became buddies. So Harry clearly, and this is not just from Dean Stott and his perspective, but from a lot of things I've read, Harry misses the military. He was in for 10 years. His uh, deploy, One of his deployments to Afghanistan got cut short because he was a royal and it was found out where he was in Afghanistan and they had to pull him out for security reasons. Um, and so that clearly is a major part of his identity. And that's not something I think that your average civilian or average uh, low information news in Biber usually uh, downloads. Usually they think, oh yeah, he's met married to this unbelievably beautiful American uh, TV actress. Um, they had this amazing wedding that everybody talked about. And he's really more of a celebrity, but not a lot of people associate his military career with that. So I wanted, I'm, I'm going to pause that to then share the reasons why I thought this was important. And I'm I'm sorry if I'm going getting a little long-winded on this, but I think it's important to set the stage. And also, I want to give Jimmy time to shift from politician mode into uh, commentator mode. So I'm going to filibuster a little for that. So um, we've had several events in the past year where we see average um, American males become violent, whether it was the Capitol Hill riots, whether it was uh, Antifa stuff some of the protests, all that. And we see uh, what we would call overseas military-aged males um, become violent. And 
we've, I, I saw this as early as I remember the 2004 GOP convention uh, when I lived in New York City, walking by Madison Square Garden where that was being held. And I saw these guys that were my age, early 20s, and they were throwing bottles down the street and all that. And I remember thinking at the time, and this was obviously 2004, there was starting to be a real anti-war movement. Uh, there was a, a pressure, a, a well-publicized pressure, kind of not to join the military. This was Bush's war, what have you. And I'm going to throw out my hypothesis, which is I think there's something that goes to the core of manhood, of being a man, that is about fighting for a worthwhile cause. Men need some reason to fight for something. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean physically fight. It could be arguing. It could be debating. It could be even something as simple as researching something and, and lending intellectual support to something. But I think there's something with men um, where they need that cause. And when your traditional avenues for noble causes are either denied or discouraged or maybe exhausted, maybe you've done your time, like we saw at the Capitol Hill riots, guys that had been in for 20 years and now no longer maybe had that sense of purpose. Um, when those traditional avenues no longer exist or, or whether because of other people's opinions or because of your own, I think something becomes perverted. I th and I don't mean that sexually. I mean that in terms of you just start your, your, your moral compass gets skewed because there needs to be some outlet. And so people will look for violence where, and, and in an untamed way where they don't otherwise need to. And what, when it comes to Harry and Meghan, what I heard in the interview when Harry starts to do a lot of the woke narrative, uh, talking about his white privilege, because I guess it would be too on the nose to talk about a royal privilege. Uh, when he kind of immediately goes along with uh, kind of some more woke narratives, to me, that looks like you're looking for a mission, dude. You miss the military. You miss having good left and right limits about what is um, a worthwhile cause. And you are fishing for what your next fight needs to be. Am I overthinking this or did I hit on something at all poignant, profound or relevant? Ayman, what do you think? Oh, absolutely. Actually, because I'm, I'm thinking from my experiences when I, uh, you know, eight years in the in the military and, and being in Iraq and everything and uh, coming home after Iraq. And I, I'll never, you know, it's one of those things I don't I won't forget. I went back uh, working uh, at my uh, at my regular, you know, went my regular job in a doctor's office doing like insurance. Stuff. <laughs> and uh, and I was sitting there and I'm, you know, finally kind of hit me where I was staring at the wall and I was like, you know, God damn, I was just, you know, raiding a village and, and one of my buddies got killed by an IED. I was like, this is not, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm supposed to be doing something else, you know? And, and that's where, um, I found my next mission through law enforcement through, you know, like you said, I mean, you, you hit it on point where I felt like I needed a, uh, a purpose, you know, a new purpose, a new mission. And uh, even to this day uh, with Project Sapient and, and, you know, with my veteran outreach stuff that I do, um, it's like uh, I have multiple missions that I do all the time. And, and that's the only way I could feel uh, like I'm, I'm contributing. And, and, you know, I've always told like my civilian friends and who own businesses and other things, I said, you know, it's all well and good, you know, making money or, or doing whatever you're doing. But to me, uh, it, it's got to be bigger than me. So that's something, you know, we, we learned in the military, you know, working in teammates and everything, you know, it's more than ourselves. It's not about us. It's about 
it's up you guys get it. i mean it's it's about more so that's the biggest thing i i got when uh when i came home and uh, i mean i totally get it with uh with trying to find a mission and and it was a it was a struggle you know I, when i came home what would you have done if you hadn't gone into law enforcement if you had just been that guy that ended up sitting in the cubicle can you can you kind of walk down that dark path what what would that have led you to do you think would do you think that would have been something where you would have gone down a path you would have regretted or would have just been kind of banging your head in against the wall and just kind of being miser- generally miserable? I, I think both. I think I would have regretted not doing something more um, and, and banging my head against the wall because it's, you know, to me, it was like the prime time where uh, I was, I was in that mindset, you know, and I felt that I really needed to do it. And if, if I didn't do it and I let it pass me, um, I don't know where I'd be today. And do you think, or Jimmy, let me shift to you and I'll ask you this, this piece. Do you think, especially with social media being so prevalent, uh, prevalent that when guys, when men are in that state, and I'm saying men, let me just stipulate, I'm saying men because I've only been a man, so I don't know what it's like for women, but be, because I do think this is something men need, when social media is right in your face, kind of coaching you to one path or another, trying to influence you constantly, is it, is it easier for people, for kind of aimless men that don't have a mission to suddenly start to adopt? Are they prone to radicalization? Are they prone to radicalization down any number of political or religious uh, paths? And does that make them more prime for that? Jimmy, what do you think? Wow. See, I, I, first of all, I was taken aback when you mentioned that about blue checks. I, I am a blue check. I don't know how the hell it happened, but I was like, I think you just took a shot at me. But uh, that, look, that, yeah, none taken. But I, none taken. But, all right, Jimmy. But, <laughs> but I love it. Um, no, I think, uh, first of all, I, I truly appreciate being on an August panel like this. Um, this is this is a tough topic because. You know, I knew we were going to we're going to get down into the granular stuff related to, you know, I hate to use the term toxic masculinity. But that when I watched the Oprah video and and I had to watch that interview just to be able to to be relevant and to be able to speak about it and everything. And I thought back to the British Empire and what it brought us. And 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 look, you talk about the warrior ethos that I think each of us have experienced in, in varying levels and we're going back 2,500 years. We're going back to 480 BC and the Spartans at the, at, you know, the hot gates at Thermopylae. Um, and, and where are we now where we have to be so very careful because there is, there is a, a way to monetize grievances and it's called the grievance industry. And that grievance industry is going to go after the very character, the very fabric of what we expect in our fighting men and our fighting women. We expect them to go out there and to confront an enemy, whoever that enemy is. It's not a, it's not a particular color. It's not a particular country. It's whoever that enemy is that they've got to confront to protect democracy. They are our vanguard and they're expected to do that. But we're getting to this place. And, and Charlie, I hope you're not going to get mad at me for using a curse word here, but I think it was Clint Eastwood that called it the pussification of America. And, 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 and that's not, that's not idle chest thumping. That's not saber rattling. That's not me pounding my chest, but 
you know, when, when, when we do send men and women into harm's way, we expect them to be a certain way. They've got to be warriors. We have the best fighters. We have the best technology. We have the best weapons. We are the greatest since the fall of the Soviet Union in the, in the early 1990s. We are the greatest fighting force on the face of this planet. But um, um, unfortunately, see, I think we're in a position now where we have to hide it or pretend that it doesn't exist or expect that the people that we're trying to draw into the profession of arms aren't warriors. And that's where I fear we're going off into a into a dark place, brother. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm going to push back on a little on one thing just to uh, see if I can make more sense of this. So when Clint Eastwood said the pussification of the country. I would actually argue maybe there isn't a pussification. It's just a variance in where we channel our anger, our rage, our masculinity. That instead of having guys go and serve in the military, there are large segments of American society where that's just not an option. They go, they think it's a fascist enterprise or there's something inherently corrupting about the military. And they go, well, no, you're still going to be violent. You're still going to uh, look for the, the a quote unquote noble fight to have, but you're not going to do it in the confines of something in service to your country or your community. You're not going to be a cop. You're not going to be a soldier. You're going to join Black Bloc or you're going to, uh, you know, you're going to look for, you're going to put horns on your head and go storm the Capitol. There's going to be something else that you need to find um, because that outlet is still going to be there. You're still going to have that will to be important and to do something great. You're just not, you've denied yourself traditional and I would submit healthy outlets for it. Am I right about that? Or, or do you think I'm missing something? No, I think you're, uh, I, I, I think you, 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 you put that into the proper context and look, um, as a guy who's, you know, who's only been in politics for a couple of years and I have to be careful because politics is so different from, what the focus is here, which is, which are the men and the women that raise their right hand and they swear to, to, to support and defend and, and they swear an oath to, to go out there and lay their lives on the line. And I think that whether it's the, the funny thing is, as I study extremism from 25 years in the FBI and, 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 you know, and, and working against left-wing extremism and right-wing extremism. And then now as I'm on the other side, you know, five years outside of government service and what we witnessed on January 6th with the Capitol insurrection. And I'm going to use that term because insurrection is a violent uprising against a uh, government or an authority. And look, being in the FBI, we, we believe in precision of language. So that's not me just throwing it out there. That that's what that was. But I also looked at nine months of police precincts being burned and stormed and occupied in Seattle and Minneapolis and a federal courthouse in Portland being firebombed with ICE officers on the inside of it, federal officers. So yeah. I get Lately it. Lately is yesterday, by the way. Too. Yeah, Apparently there's video from just yesterday. Even yeah. So so all I'm saying to, to, to simply wrap this up is, man, it's like, you know, both ends of the bird, the left wing on the far end of the extreme and the right wing on the far end of the extreme. They're not that different. They have a fervent belief that is used the term before you said, hey, perversion and not in a sexual way, but an ideology that just becomes perverted. And I'll wrap it up really quickly by saying this. A lot of times well-meaning people 
join organizations. And I think Iman said it perfectly when he said about being part of something bigger than ourselves, which is why we all joined the organizations that we did. But think about it. My family comes from Sicily, right, back in the 19th century. And back in those days, the mafia was formed to protect the peasant class. And then it turned in on itself and began eating its own. The same thing with the Bloods and the Crips in South Central Los Angeles. The same thing with these with these right-wingers and the same thing with Antifa and even Black Lives Matter. These things start as an honorable idea and then they become perverted and they morph or coalesce into something wrong. Charlie, you could probably speak to that too. I, I think it's fair to say, I, I would group the Taliban, Al-Shabaab, um, Hezbollah, uh, Hamas. I would group all of them in that category as well as something that ostensibly... And there might be a very quick flash to bang time with this, but ostensibly might have had noble and uh, community based reasons for existing, but quickly became perverted. What do you think? Yeah, I think, first of all, there's a lot to unpack on what you guys just said. And one of the reasons I'm, I'm grateful to be on the show is because of all this great information that's coming out. But when Jimmy was talking just now, what immediately popped into my mind was this horseshoe theory of politics, which if you envision a horseshoe and folks like us in the middle, we're farther away from the extremes on either end than they are to each other. So that's the thing a lot of folks don't like to acknowledge is the extreme left and extreme right are way similar, more similar to each other than they are to those of us in the middle. And we saw this a lot going back and forth to Israel and dealing with the Israelis and the Palestinians on our, on our summer trips with the Yale students and West Point cadets and hearing uh, a Jewish settler, a conservative settler talk and then hearing a conservative Palestinian Authority representative, their rhetoric is, is very similar comparative to the the Palestinians and the Israelis that are in the middle. And that's what I, one of the things I was thinking about when I was listening to Jimmy talk just now, but I was also thinking how grateful I am for people like Jimmy and Iman who are highly functional veterans and giving back to their communities and finding their second mission instead of sitting around being disgruntled and angry and running off and joining like you were talking about, Chris, these organizations that are bent on violence and destruction. No, absolutely. And I, I want to throw another aspect of it out there. So little anecdote, when my wife and I were living in D.C., my wife used to go to a juice place and, uh, you know, smoothies, juices, what have you. And she got to know a guy that worked there because she'd see him every time she went in. And what struck her about him was that, you know, he wasn't um, a yoga chick. You know, he wasn't... Uh, he wasn't somebody that looked like they would be into kind of new agey or super healthy things. He looked like kind of robust American male, um, you know, looked like he had, you know, good, good bone structure, good muscle tone and all that. And she was like, and, and, uh, she said, you know, uh, are, are you the owner or something? And he's like, no, 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 I just work here. Uh, and she's like, okay. She's like, do you, are you in school or anything? He's like, no, no, not in school. She's like, so you, you just, work at a juice bar and you just take money and work for tips at juice bar. And he's like, yeah, yeah. She's like, wow. And she's like, are you from DC? And he's like, no, no moved here. And she's like, okay. She's like, well, what did you, I mean, did you move to DC just to work at a juice bar? He's like, no, no, no. He's like, I, I really wanted to be a cop. And he's like, but, and this, I'm, I'm putting body English on this, that to our listeners are, they're not going to be able to see, but he said, uh, you know, I want to be a cop, but can't do that. 
it's not, it, it, you know, it, 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 I forget exactly his phrasing, but the body English and the attitude that he conveyed was that's just not a valuable use of time. It's not a noble pursuit. It's not something that actually is going to achieve, um, you know, any, I'm not going to get any satisfaction with that because I'd be working for the wrong guys. Um, and again, I'm not saying that he's radicalized or going out and, you know, firebombing, uh, you know, courthouses in Portland or anything like that. But it's one of those things where it just it encourages this apathy in what otherwise might be a really valuable asset to have um, to be that middle ground, to be kind of pushing back for institutions that are worth protecting. And instead, he's kind of been turned off and his, his to use my wife's kind of more new agey terminology, his light has been extinguished somewhat uh, by that. I mean, especially because of the work you do with Project Sapien. What, what is, I mean, what do you think when you hear somebody like that that kind of looks through that lens at law enforcement? Well, it, it it's just, so law enforcement has been evolving for, since you know the uh, the night uh, uh, the night patrols of uh, way back in the uh, in the early 1900s um, all the way up through today and it's been evolving evolving and we continue to evolve and I think what what one of the issues that you know I always bring up within law enforcement is the 80 percent 20 percent what I call as 80 percent of the guys are just there just you know, that are cops that are just there. They're not, they're not your go-getters. They're not your uh, hunters. They're not your, you know, your guys who are out there actually defending the community, doing stuff for the community. So the 80% is what is uh, seen a lot versus that 20%. So, you know, whatever uh, this guy's experiences was uh, with, with police, and then, you know, maybe he had aspirations to become a cop, but then when he saw Maybe he he went to a recruitment and saw that eighty percent, and didn't like what he saw. You know what what he's seen. It, you know that because the the twenty percent workers of of a police department you don't see. You know they're, they're either in specialty units. They're they're doing undercover work. They're I mean they're they're very 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 busy and and they do a lot for the community. Um, I mean, I've talked to, uh, through Project Sape, and I've talked to cops all over the country. And these cops, your 20% that, that I talk to, they're, they're exhausted by the 80%. So, so when, when, when a kid like that says, I mean, I've had kids come up to me and say, hey, you know, I want to become a cop. I said, absolutely. I said, we, we need uh, those 20% to go up more. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it should shift in reality. It should be 80% of the workers and 20% are the ones that are just there. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's the way. And, and I think that has hurt law enforcement for the longest time is that whole aspect. So, so with him, he, uh, you know, it, it, I really think that that's what he saw. He saw that 80%, the abuse of power or what have you. I mean, we all know even in the military, as soon as, you know, some some some, some E4 becomes an NCO, yeah. all of a sudden, bam, it, it, like they just, their minds just switch. Yep. You see that with the badge. It's, it's, it's not any different. There are some people when they get that badge, they get drunk with power, I call it. Yeah, of course. Jimmy, did you see the same thing with the FBI? I'm assuming... Uh, yeah, feel free to also plead the fifth on this. I don't want you to feel like you have to dime out the FBI. Yeah, I, I think, you know, policing has, and, and I'm in pointed it out perfectly. I mean, first of all, it's funny that we started on a segment with, uh, 
Prince Harry and Meghan Markle because, you know, American policing was actually begun based on the English model back in like the 17th century, going back to the 1600s. And obviously, you know, once we got here and the colonists and 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 I think I'm an alluded to it, you know, the, the slave patrols of the, you know, 1619 time frame, um, policing has come a long way from that. And I think it's a it's a difficult thing because I think it's convenient for and I used the term before the grievance industry, the the outrage circus to immediately go back and say, well, you know, it's exactly the way it was in 1776, 245 years ago. Nothing has changed when we all know that that's not the case. The FBI, um, you know, it's it's there's things it does better than say your local police and there's things it does far worse and far more clumsily than than the local police do. But FBI's been around since 1908. Um, so in that time frame, it, it's only had eight directors because Jared Hoover spent, you know, 48 years of that time as a, you know, basically as a guy who was more powerful than the, I think the, the eight presidents that, uh, that he served under. So we've come a long way too. we may, we've made a lot of mistakes, but I think, um, policing and, and when I use the term policing, I'm talking about local cops, state troopers and federal agents, policing has come a long way, and and, and obviously it's it's under fire. I mean, it, we're, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of the George Floyd death right. in, in Minneapolis, which happened on, if I, if I have my date straight, on Memorial Day last year. So we're coming up on that, and obviously the police officers that were involved in that are all going to be facing trial here here shortly. Um is 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 reckoning the right word and, and the right direction that we need to go in? I think that's fair. But as a guy who's studying this as my doctoral pursuit at St. John's University, looking at use of force, um, I'll leave you with some staggering statistics. Every year in this country, right, a country of 327 million people, police officers that are made up of about 800,000 of us. So it's very similar to the model of the military, which, you know, the military is a half percent of the American population. Law enforcement is a half percent of our population. So every year in this country, police officers have some 76 million interactions with private citizens. Everything from helping Mrs. McGillicuddy cross the street safely to pulling somebody over for a broken taillight to responding to a domestic abuse to responding to a bank robbery to stopping, you know, uh, an assault in progress. 76 million. Now, for your listeners, every year police officers in this country shoot and kill 1,000 U.S. citizens. Now, that sounds like a huge number, right? But 76 million interactions, 1,000 police-involved deaths, we call them in the business, PIDs. Of those 1,000, maybe 70 or 80 are considered to be quote-unquote unarmed. And, and the thing that I think the listeners need to understand is 
Unarmed doesn't mean that somebody didn't violently fight a police officer, try to disarm him, pick up a stick and use it as a cudgel. It just means they didn't have a defined pistol, revolver, or knife on them at the time. And if you look at the numbers when it when it comes to race, which is, you know, this is the flashpoint in America right now. I'm dealing with this in a tiny, sleepy, upstate New York community of 3,000 people that is 97% white. In this community, policing has become a big issue because the national narrative has become our narrative here. And yet when you try to talk about the statistics, you can say, hey, guys and gals, let's settle down and let's talk about what the numbers are. See, I'm here to tell you, people don't want to hear the numbers. The numbers show that our police are unbelievably restrained in doing their job on a day-to-day basis, a dangerous job that they do and they do well. So I have zero law enforcement background, but um, in in a previous life, when I was a nightclub bouncer, um, I worked a lot with LAPD and LA Sheriff's Department because I I think I made, over the course of my time bouncing, I think I made 77 private person arrests. And what continues to get under my skin is when people forward opinions, very strong opinions, and have never actually stood between someone that is helpless and someone that has bad intentions. And they've never actually been the person that has to stand in between those two. And that it's a, it's a difficult thing. It's one of those things that you see in movies so I think people think that they're subject matter experts on it because, well, yeah, it's like, I get it. It's tough to be a cop. You make a vehicular stop. You don't know if the guy's got a gun. Yeah, I get that argument. But I think unless you've been in those kind of situations and unless you've bled a little bit trying to help someone or protect someone or render another person harmless, I don't think you can fully appreciate the decision-making process. And I think that's where the rhetoric goes down a rabbit hole because it's easy to talk, but not a lot of people actually want to be the tip of the spear that actually have to do something. And uh, this actually pivots perfectly to Iman's story that we want to talk about this week. Um, Iman wrote an article called False Reporting, a True Epidemic in Law Enforcement, where Iman, you, and I I won't steal too much of the thunder from the article, but you, you, you dime out the issue of calls for service that people are constantly calling in. And a lot of these calls are a waste of time. (laughs) And uh, I noticed what, uh, you know, there's a lot of avenues we can go down with this, but that to me, um, you know, I I think at the end you strike somewhat of a pessimistic tone where you're like, I, you know, it, it would take a lot of different entities to come together to figure out how to solve this. But I think one thing is I, at the end of the day, it's us. It's uh, we have to understand that there is there are major issues with um, making that decision to be the person that steps in between people that wish others ill and someone that's that's helpless. And to do that, what do we have to do to support them better? But you take it away from here because. I can filibuster about somebody else, but <laughs> yeah. your article. So, yeah. So, the, I mean, in the uh, uh, that article, um, um, you know, the false reporting a true epidemic. I mean, it, it, 
there are so I mean, there's countless amount of times with the calls for service, like like uh, James said, with the 76 million interactions that police make every year, uh, the the calls for service that we we go to, uh, we have you know all this technology between apps of sending in anonymous tips and stuff like that, and and I mean, just at the app alone. Uh, you know, when we, we respond or we go take a look into whatever complaint it might be, it's not what it is. It's, it's, it's neighbors hating other neighbors or a neighbor built a fence that was two inches into the property of the other neighbor. Now he, this neighbor turned into a massive drug dealer that now police look, need to look into and, you know, operationally, uh, you know, I, I always think, again, policing, yeah, paramilitary or whatever, but operationally, we shift resources, we have to look into stuff, we, we, you know, we, we do countless uh, amounts of time, I mean, James, James understands, it's like, uh, in my aspect, where we get a complaint, and we have to go out to do surveillance all night, you know, all day, all night, we got to go out there, we put, uh, you know, uh, surveillance cameras in place, or whatever else we got to do in place, just to see what's going on. And it turns out it's not what it is. You know, those those are, are time wasters for police where we can actually be out there doing other things. And and the other thing that that happens is now and, and it's been going on for the past few years is police get called if a kid doesn't want to go to school. You know, you're talking elementary, middle school type age kids, and and that's where you know I have a problem with 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 that. One, why is the government stepping in to be the parent for parents? You know, I mean, I mean, a lot of times I tell you, hey, you're the parent. You got to have your kid go to school. If he doesn't go to school, there's something. There's an underlying uh, reason. Usually there is. But those are usually, uh, you know, uh, helped with social workers, the, you know, uh, Department of Children Affairs, stuff like that. But, but when, when police have to be involved in, in every societal issue, it's, it's exhausting. Can, for, can, for cops. can I quote you back to Jimmy then? Because yeah. one of the lines you had there, uh, Jimmy, I love your thoughts on this. Iman says the police are the go-to for every societal problem. And to me, when I hear people talk about defunding the police and all that, I go, look, you can change the nomenclature. We can we can play that game all day. We can call them whatever we want. I'll call them community support team, whatever. But somebody's got to be the tip of the spear. And right now, the police, not the politicians, generally speaking, um, but it's the police that are the ones that have to go out and actually put themselves on the line to deal with the host of problems, whether it's the neighbor built, you know, the neighbors encroaching on your yard, whether it's a domestic violence, whether it's something credible, whether it's not, it's the police that actually have to go uh, and be that tip of the spear. Well, see, you know that, uh, you know, the most popular podcasts are the ones where you invite guests on who are going to argue with each other and call each other <laughs> names. And so, you know, I, I, I hope the listeners aren't going to go, this is, Gentlemen, this is becoming a love fest. It's dangerously becoming a love fest. Let let me just piggyback on what my brother, my fellow brother in blue pointed out. We are asking law enforcement officers today to be social workers. We're asking them to be violence disruptors, whatever the hell that means. We're asking them to be mental health professionals. We're asking them to show up on a scene and assess it in a nanosecond and you know with those with with military experience that they understand how that is you've got to make 
quick, you've got to do a quick calculus and, and make decisions. But in a military combat theater, gentlemen, it's very different than it is when you're enforcing the law and where every round has to be accounted for. There is no suppressive fire. There are no machine guns. If every round has to be accounted for. So it makes the job difficult. Now, having said that, that's no excuse. Police officers get up every day. They right. strap on their Batman utility belt. They go to work and they do their job just like folks in the military do. They salute. They say, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. What's my mission for today? I think one of the important things, and I think Eamon touched on this earlier is talking about like body cam. So, so I am a village trustee. You talked about the political piece of this. I'm a village trustee, elected village trustee in a small village, you know, upstate New York, close to the United States military Academy, where I'm also running for mayor. And in this village, you know, every police department in this country is different in this village. There are three full-time police officers and 11 part-time police officers. Now, contrast that with New York City, a city of 8.4 million people. There are 36,000 cops. There are three more cops for every FBI agent across the globe in New York City. That's how big that department is. I agree on the body cam issue. We don't have them in the small, sleepy, bucolic village that I live in. But I will point you to this. I was a cop or an agent back in New York City during the time where broken windows policing, stop yep. question and frisk, and yep. comp stat became a thing. And when I when I got to New York City at the end of 1990, right? End of 1990, New York City had suffered 2,262 homicides. Last year, there were 300 and change, and that's that's 300 and change too many, but the drastic reduction is due to, I think what Iman pointed out earlier, proactive policing. Police officers are getting out of their vehicle, engaging. They see something, their spidey sense tingles, they get out, and they do that. You cannot do that in 2021. Why is that? Because you will be charged with everything there possibly is. You have to do your job bereft of the ability to use judgment and discernment. I'll leave you with one final statistic, C, before I turn it back to you. And that is when the New York City Police Department was investigated back in 2013 when Mayor de Blasio took over and stop questioning Frisk was basically pushed to the side. They were looking at body cameras and trying to see if they made a difference. They put body cameras in a, in a control group to do a test to see if it changed anything. It didn't change any use of force statistics, whether it is less than lethal or fatal force. You know what it, you know what it changed, see? It changed the number of complaints to the civilian complaint review board. And gentlemen, with that, I'll drop the mic. That's that's a good point to do it, Charlie. That's a tough one to follow. What are your thoughts? Well, it's just I, I'm listening to all this from my my brothers in law enforcement. As you know, I don't have any experience in it, but I do read pretty regularly, and I am concerned about the trajectory of the nation for a number of reasons, not the least of which is how difficult policing might might become and, and is right now for our brothers and sisters in blue. But I was also reading with interest an article about the First Lady of New York City 
and how she was talking about the 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 five D's that she wants to see New York City person uh, citizens in, interact when they see something: uh, distract, delegate, delay, document, and direct. And I couldn't help but think if only there was an organization of maybe 36,000 people whose job it was to do these types of things. And if we have them trained and equipped and supported on the streets, maybe they could intervene better than a guy like me who's who's old and out of shape and really doesn't want to fight with folks on the streets of New York City when I go down there from time to time. So that's kind of what popped into my mind during that conversation, Chris. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Um, you know, thinking about the defund the police movement and we're you know, people are like, yeah, they're, they're, they're the cause of so many issues and all that. It, it, it's going to be a little bit of a reach, but I, it, in the Central African Republic, they had a rebel group called the Balaka and the Balaka were savage and were beheading people and all that. And they struck a peace deal with the government. And then after the peace deal decided they, they still had their problems with the government that they had before. So they came back, but they called themselves the anti-Balaka. Now, because they were like, well, we're not the Balaka. We're now the anti-Balaka, but we do the exact same thing. That's what I think of when I hear of defund the police. It's like, okay, so you think that they're, they have massive overreach. They're not trustworthy. So you'll defund them, but then you're going to have somebody come back and do that job. And it's probably going to be a lot of the same types of people because not a lot of other types of people want to do that job. Um, or physically willing to put themselves on the line. So really, this is just a, a semantic game. This isn't actually based on anything substantive. Yeah, and I think First Lady McRae has got a point. I, I do think an average citizen should intervene when they can, when they when they see things like that going on. But at the end of the day, you don't want vigilantes and you don't want independent actors. I'm, I remember reading about that type of thing going on in New York City on the subways and things like that, folks taking the law in their own hands. So I don't think, I don't think that idea is completely without merit, but it's got to be complemented by an organization of trained professionals who are out there on it, doing it every day. Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. I, I want to touch back on something Jimmy talked about because, um, Jimmy, I, I'm actually, uh, I was raised in New York City. Um, I was a lifelong New Yorker until I abandoned it for L.A., like I think every New Yorker does at some point because you want to know what weather, what what you know, nice weather is like on a fairly permanent basis. Um, but I came of age, uh, like I was a teenager in the early 90s. And I remember going to box at the Times Square Boxing Club on 42nd. Don't look for it now. It's now the Condé Nast building. They published Vanity Fair there. But uh, I remember going, I used to, I was 16. I'd have a knife in my, uh, in the back of my belt. Uh, and I'd go and there'd be prostitutes turning tricks in the uh, stairwell leading up to the boxing gym. There'd be homeless guys there. It was a cesspool. So to your point, I remember very well when that murder rate came back down in a way that I think people that have moved to New York City in the last 25 years would have, have a hard time understanding just how bad the city was. The city, if you want to get an idea, I recommend everybody go watch Taxi Driver or Midnight Cowboy. And that starts to give you a little inkling of just how bad the city was uh, citywide. And during the, the 1990s, to see the crime rate start to drop in ways that no one thought was possible was um, probably the, the most politically motivating event in my life. It was the first time in my life I'd ever seen politicians do stuff and back efforts that actually had real world consequences. Um, and obviously, Jimmy, you were 
had, if I had this right, you came up with the FBI in 1991 to New York City. Is that right? Yeah, I got there. Um, I got there literally at the peak of the New York City violent crime rate. Um, you know, because I arrived in May of 1991. At the end of 1990, I quoted that. Uh, I quoted that statistic, which is, you know, I, I, I keep it close at hand: 2,262 homicides. In, in the city at the end yep. of 1990, um, the city has has didn't have a higher murder rate before that. Hasn't had one after that. Look, you can never drive crime down to zero because assholes live amongst us. Sure. You'll never be able to do that. We live in a country under the rule of law. There's always going to be a need for police. There's always going to be the need for the military and and people evil exist, right? We we get that here. The four of us here, we get that and understand that. It's this nonsense about reimagining policing. Hey, look, I'm all about you know, do our police officers need more implicit bias training? Because every single one of us is imbued with implicit bias. Every single one of us is imbued with prejudices. And every single one of us is really the way that we conduct our lives is based on our experiences and our background and, and what we know and what we understand and how we were raised. The bottom line is when we start to handcuff the cops like we, like we are right now, you are not just going to see the uptick in violent crime. And, and look, I know we can factor in COVID-19. We can factor in a lot of other things. But you are not just going to see an uptick. You are going to see a return to the bad old days. Yeah. See, that is my prediction. And, and it's so disappointing because I feel like we've learned that lesson. We know what, we, we know what works and we're willfully disregarding it. And that's a luxury um, that we are taking a bit too lightly. I, I, we're, we're running short on time. So, Jimmy, we're not going to get to your piece, Living with a Mobster, which I want to touch on for a lot of reasons, not the least of which because it goes right to the heart of the 1990s. I rem- it's about your time living with Sammy the Bull Gravano, who, whose testimony brought down John Gotti. This, I, I, I lived in the city at the time. It was an absolutely epic story uh, for us that lived in the city at the time. I don't know how much it resonated uh, if it resonated to the same degree with people that weren't in New York City. But I have a lot of fond memories of my dad reading the New York Post every morning. Just can't wait to get more details on Sammy the Bull. And uh, I, I'll never forget uh, that he, he he just laughed out loud when he heard that Sammy the Bull every morning used to ask, and it might have been you guys, uh, ask if his sideburns were equal. And I just got to know, is that true? Did Sammy? Did I remember that right? Is that something that Sammy used to ask? That's a great question, man. And and see, let me just tell you this. Uh, The answer to that is we will do this again because (laughs) you know know how I know we're going to do this again? Because whether it was Maurice Starr, who was the guy behind NSYNC back in the – no, not NSYNC, back behind the Backstreet Boys back in the day, or Lou Pearlman, who owned the rights to NSYNC, Charles Faint. He owns me. So he knows that he was my manager from the start. So when Charles calls and says, we're going to do another show, and this one's going to be about the mob, and, and and I'll give you a quick 30-second vignette, which I think you'll find pretty cool. I got a phone call. God, it was about a year ago, and it was from a production company. And normally, and 
I'm in don't don't please don't think bad of me because I'm gonna this is gonna sound so pretentious. But normally I funnel things through my agent. I'm just gonna let that hang in the air for a second. I'm just gonna let that hang in the air for a second. Normally I funnel everything through my agent. So I get a call and it's from a company that is uh that that is working within CBS Viacom, because I'm gonna drop some names here on you right now because it makes me look more important than I am. And they said and they said, Hey, look, we're doing a show. Um, and what we're trying to do is it's about the mob is really hot right now. The mob from the 70s, 80s and 90s. We know that you live with Sammy the Bull. We know that you've got a connection. We want to have a sit down with you and Sammy the Bull Gravano's daughter, Karen, who starred on Mob Wives. And I said, I don't do reality shows. I said, I don't know how much of a brand I have. My brand is really not a brand, but I said, I don't do reality shows. I'm happy to do anything that I can make the FBI look good, police look good, but that's not my thing. No, 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 no. We're trying to show like a where are they now thing. And so about a month ago, I went down to New York City, which is a ghost town right now. See, I hate to tell you this, but we we met inside an old steakhouse down in the financial district. The steakhouse was closed. So obviously we had the whole place and we filmed a meeting on air. So they, they videoed it. And I actually met Sammy Gravano's daughter, who now is like 40, who I knew when she was a kid. And I was a kid babysitting him. So I got plenty of stories to talk about that stuff. But we'll have to do that on another show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's a whole separate hour. That is awesome. Um, okay, we're going to pivot just for in the interest of time solely because we seriously could do five hours here. Um, Iman, talk us through Project Sapien. Yep. Yeah, so uh, Project Sapient, uh, it was just, uh, you know, after being, you know, in, in policing for 15 year plus years and, and, and seeing the progression of, of the, the training and how, um, sorry to say this, James, but politicians who, who uh, uh, cutting back on, 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 uh, on uh, training budgets and all kinds of things. And, and, the checkbox, the checkbox training that's been happening across the country with police departments, um, it caught up to us, right? It, it, it you know, that that eighty percent, twenty percent I always talk about, it caught up to us. And and what Project Sapient is is uh, yes, it, I started that as a podcast just to get the message out there. And and with with uh, Charlie and Havoc Journal, which again I'm I'm very very grateful to be a part of. Uh, you know, helping me pass that message along with my articles and everything that I've written. And by the way, Charlie, I did a uh, count, uh, 48 articles wow. <laughs> I've written. Hey, hey <laughs> let, me, let me tell you, I'm in all your 48 articles aren't as long as one of Jimmy Gagliano's. <laughs> <laughs> So so yeah so so with the articles Charlie, and just you put that on a T for you come on that was <laughs> that was staged <laughs> so, so like, like I was saying it it, it uh, so you know I. I Turned it into a podcast of of the articles to highlight uh, the articles I write for Havoc Journal uh, to talk even deeper, more into them. Because again, like I could, if I write an article on on a certain topic, it'll probably be thirty pages long by the time I'm done with it, and even then, it, it'll still be more. But project, what Project Sapient is, is bringing uh, reality based training to policing and stress inoculation training to policing because. 
it doesn't happen as much as people think. And, and it dumbfounds me with, with my civilian friends. They don't realize that that part of the training never happens. It's, so, it, it's interesting. You know, it's sort of a parallel. I think uh, when I've met um, you know, civilians that, that run into somebody that works for uh, CIA, they'll immediately go, oh, you're a trained killer or something. And I don't think they understand what the CIA does. <laughs> you know, and it's kind of that way, I think, with a lot of civilians in law enforcement. They go, you wear a badge, you must obviously, um, you know, have X, Y, and Z training, uh, be able to handle a multitude of situations with absolute peak professionalism and, and expertise. And it's, it's a process like everything else. Yes, exactly. And and that's one thing where, yeah, I mean, you hit it right there where we have to be experts in a multitude of, of things. And I always say uh, the way society, you know, police is a, is a reflection of the way society is today. You know, that that's something I, I, I kind of say and, it, uh, you know, let it marinate for a second and really think about it is what's going on now in policing because we have to handle every societal issue out there. That's what you get now. So that, that's order. something to really yeah. think about it. No, absolutely. That's a hugely tall order. Uh, Charlie, since we're in our situational awareness segment where I want to make sure our listeners um, can follow us and hear about some of the great things we're doing. Last time I denied you the opportunity to talk about it. So this time, can we get in the weeds with second mission and talk about that? Yeah. Thanks for asking about that, Chris. I appreciate it. And one of the things that we kind of spun off of the Havoc Journal is, is we recognize the need for something like you're talking about regarding Prince Harry is for the veteran community, which we define broadly as not only military vets, but first responders and security contractors who supported government agencies. We see that these members of the veteran community are in desperate need of a second mission. And you have two good examples on your show right now of folks who have found them between Jimmy and I, and they found their second, and you, Chris, because you're yeah, a vet as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> not, not the least of which, our, our fearless host have found their second mission after their service. So what we've we've done is we set up a foundation uh, through the generosity of, of several uh, donors who've given us quite a bit of money to do this. And what we do is we help veterans find their second mission. That might be helping them get their their business set up. And it might be helping them get into law enforcement. And what we're also doing is helping vets write books. We've got our first book coming out in a couple of weeks. I feel really excited about that. So that's what yeah, it's The Hill by, by Aaron Kay, and Aaron, uh, Aaron is a Marine. He's writing about his time in Afghanistan. There's a, a book called, um, called Matterhorn that I think was kind of the, one of the foundational books about the Vietnam experience, and I think his book is going to be the foundational one about the Afghan experience for Marines. Wow. But at any rate, um, that's what we're doing with Second Mission, and I appreciate you giving me a chance to, to push it on the show. No, I mean, trust me, it, it, it's, it's such an important mission, and it's it's funny because it does dovetail with obviously the news that we're talking about. Um, I know we left Megan and Harry, like in the first five minutes, that apparently was more of a jumping off point than a subject we we're actually going to dive into. And that's totally fine. But second mission, having a second mission and the fact that there's actually an organization out there to help vets find that second mission, I think is hugely important. Um, I was reading an article um, the other day, or no, I was listening to a podcast. And somebody was talking about their beef with John Legend as they got into it over something about, I think it was airstrikes in Syria. And I was like, how in God's name does John Legend have an opinion on airstrikes in Syria? And it occurred to me that, you know, when vets transition to have that second mission, 
whatever, obviously they don't have one set uh, point of view, but they do have experiences that ground them, that make them generally serious people. Um, where if you're, whatever your platform is that you're building, whether it's a business or whether God forbid you get into the entertainment or infotainment space, you have some gravitas. You have something to call back on. You're not simply mouthing off because you read something on Yahoo News or you're not mouthing off because you just have a platform built on legitimate entertainment, but something that you, you don't have anything, um, any real experience behind it. I think vets have a lot to say. And uh, having an organization that helps them get to that next mission where they can give something of, of that experience to the world at large, again, bridge that civilian military divide and uh, allow people to benefit from their experience, I think is incredibly worthwhile. Well, I appreciate it, Chris. And secondmission.org for anyone who wants to check it out or anyone that needs some help. It will be in the show notes, as will Project Sapien, as w- and and links. Uh, I'm going to remind me: is is it just the podcast that has the site, or is there a site also attached to the separate from the actual podcast site? N- not yet. We're still, you know, I'm still building the site. I'm taking my time actually to make sure it's, you know, pretty much perfect the way I want it. Mm-hmm. So the site's still being built, but the podcast is obviously active and it's on all the platforms. Got you. And then Jimmy, obviously. Uh, your site, if people want to get a hold of you, if they have questions, comments, snide remarks, uh, where can they find you? Sorry about that, brother. I dropped the microphone. Um, <laughs> not not figuratively, but actually, literally. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I've, I've, I've got a website, but uh, it, the most important thing is that people go to Havoc Journal. It, it's funny. Um, I think it was five years ago when I when I met Charlie through his wife, by the way, the, who's, you know, the rock star in the family. But uh, he's a close second. But when I met him um, and, and, and got the and got the opportunity early on to jump on with Havoc Journal, um, what you guys are doing is is amazing and you don't need shills and you don't need somebody to patronize and say you know but i i'm i'm more shocked now you know i can get an article posted on cnn.com and i'll have somebody that pulls up an old article that i wrote that poor charlie had to uh, edit back in the day when i was doing 4000 or 5000 words for an op-ed um and i'll get somebody to say hey i read that thing and um really it's it's the the platform what you guys are doing for veterans and the fact that you've wrapped guys like me and Iman in who, you know, law enforcement is it, law enforcement is our thing. And, and that's what we're trying to do right now, because I really look at law enforcement today the same way the Vietnam vets returning from Vietnam in the late 60s and early 70s were because we, we celebrate the military now. Right. We can still blast the politicians who send who send them into harm's way and say it was a poor decision. But we cherish the soldiers that are out there, the boots on the ground. We didn't do that in the late sixties and the early seventies. We hated the, 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 the people that were out there just, just prosecuting the war. We, we didn't go after the policymakers as much as we did the people that were doing the work. And I think now law enforcement has become the Vietnam vets of the late sixties and the early seventies. Now we are blaming them for the ills of society. So the fact that havoc has has given a platform to people like us and given us an opportunity to write and is pushing this and, and the new podcast, 
guys, uh, I'm I'm proud of you. I'm I'm proud to be a part of it. I hope you. I hope Charlie and the rest of you will continue to take my calls, and uh, I hope you stay in touch for a long time. Well, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if um, I don't know if we'll be able to get you because we'll have to go through your agent, right? <laughs> no, Charlie's got the cell phone. I don't get the cell phone out, but Charlie does have the cell phone. If we can get the agent's name, we'll put that in the show notes, and then we can send everything to there. And make sure Anybody that can get me hired somewhere as an agent, that guy should be agent of the year. Hey, hey, Chris, we're we're not going to have to run it through his agent next time. We're going to have to go through the mayor's office. He's going to make us all oh, call yeah. him your honor next time we have. All right, show. gentlemen, everybody, calm down. <laughs> Three more hard days of turning the vote out. So um, we're not there yet. But getting dangerously close. Listen, gents, thank you all for being here. This was great. Um, really appreciate it. Uh, great conversations. Good stuff that's going to have me muttering to myself the rest of the day. So thank you guys for being here. All right. Thank you for having us. Thanks, brothers. Good luck, Jimmy. Appreciate it. You got it, guys. Thank you. Be safe. Of course. Everyone else, thank you for listening. Really appreciate you guys being here. Obviously, we can't do any of this without you all, the listeners. So please, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Five-star reviews on iTunes and any other of the hosts that ask for five-star reviews. Um, Charlie, links are coming to the Havoc Journal site, so people will be able to reach us through there, if I'm right? That's correct. Okay, cool. And if you like the show, if you liked us, If you didn't like us, but you appreciated what we're trying to say and you got where we're coming from, please leave reviews. Five-star reviews are awesome. You have a right to criticize if you have a heart to help. That was Winston Churchill, but I'm stealing that because I think it's great guidance for anyone who wants to leave a review. We appreciate it. Uh, We appreciate your support. We appreciate constructive criticism. Uh, If you want to find anything uh, else out about me, about my writing, You can check it out on Havoc Journal. You can always find me at savagewonder.substack.com. As always, thank you to our producer, Michael Neal, who makes us sound professional. And uh, on behalf of Jimmy Gagliano, I'm in Cafel, Charlie Faint. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. We will see you next time for the Weekly Havoc. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm starting to wonder if we're, we're going to have to start pushing this and make it more of an hour and a half. Yeah. Mike's going to be like, what the hell, man? It was my whole weekend. Yeah, right. <laughs> he, told me he, was, he told me he was single, and ever since then, it's like, oh, yeah, you got time, right? Yeah, you got time. Yeah, go ahead. Edit the hell out of me. Yeah, because the longer we talk, the more he's got to edit, right? <laughs> yeah, it's totally a courtesy to him. Yeah, if it's up to me, we, I do a Joe Rogan, we do five hours. <laughs> oh, man. That's got a lot of beers for me, man. Yeah, yeah. That's why you need that third, fourth hour. You want to hear what's going on? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs>